You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us turn our attention this morning, open our Bibles at Romans chapter 9, the verses 1 to 18. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, he was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. We continue our series this morning on the Canons of Dort. Let's turn to chapter 1, the Articles 9, 10, 12, and 13. Article 9, election not based on foreseen faith. This election is not based on foreseen faith, the obedience of faith, holiness, or any other good quality of disposition as a cause or condition in man required for being chosen. But men are chosen to faith, the obedience of faith, holiness, and so on. Election, therefore, is the fountain of every saving good from which flow faith, holiness, and other saving gifts. And finally, eternal life itself as its fruits and effects. This the apostle teaches when he says he chose us not because we were, but that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
Article 10, election based on God's good pleasure. The cause of this gracious election is solely the good pleasure of God. This good pleasure does not consist in this, that out of all possible conditions, God chose certain qualities or actions of men as a condition for salvation, but in this, that out of the common mass of sinners, he adopted certain persons to be his own possession. For it is written, though they, the children, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, and so on, she, namely Rebecca, was told the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Article 12, the assurance of election. The elect in due time, though in various stages and in different measure, are made certain of this, their eternal and unchangeable election to salvation. They attain this assurance, however, not by inquisitively prying into the hidden and deep things of God, but by observing in themselves with spiritual joy and holy delight the unfailing fruits of election pointed out in the word of God, such as a true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, and a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Article 13, the value of this assurance, the measure and assurance of this election provide the children of God with greater reason for daily humbling themselves before God, for adoring the depths of his mercy, for cleansing themselves, and for fervently loving him in turn who first so greatly loved them. It is therefore not at all true that this doctrine of election and the reflection on it makes them lax in observing the commands of God are falsely secure. In the just judgment of God, this usually happens to those who rashly presume to have the grace of election, or idly and boldly chatter about it, but refuse to walk in the ways of the elect. Thus far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, when people suddenly inherit a lot of money, they often assume that from now on their troubles are over. They no longer need to get up early in the morning to go to work. And their worries about meeting mortgage payments, paying off their credit cards, or making their car payments are over. Easy street, here we come. They can shop till they drop. They can eat till they burst. They can tan till they melt. What a life. At least that is what we think. Looking at it from the outside, it all seems so easy and so nice. But nevertheless, beloved, the reality is often different. Read the stories about people who suddenly come into large amounts of money. And if you do, you soon discover that this is not without its challenges and its hurdles. For one, where are you going to invest your new discovered wealth? On another score, what are you going to do with all of those long-lost relatives and those many new friends who come around looking for handouts and easy loans? And what about all that free time? You see, striking pay dirt is not without complications. Yes, and to some extent, and in some ways, 
the biblical teaching of election is like this. Last time in our series of sermons on the first head of doctrine of the canons of Dort, we compared Article 7 to striking pay dirt, to finding treasure. We compared it to a deep, rich theological treasure. And in it, God is very much at work. Already before the foundation of the world, he was choosing a people for himself. He was doing it out of his sovereign good pleasure. He was doing so out of the whole human race, a race that had fallen into sin and perdition. And in the process of considering that treasure, some questions and fears arose as well. Who are the elect? Are we among the elect? How can we ever know? But then, beloved, we also answered those questions in a resounding fashion. For we said we can know, we can be sure, we can be confident. How? By looking to Christ. By embracing Christ in faith. All who truly believe in Christ are numbered among the elect of God. For you see, God's election is always election in Christ. And so we can be certain. Article 7 showed us that our election treasure is real and soundly biblical. We may grab hold of it, we may run with it, and we may enjoy it. But nevertheless, as with most treasures, the challenges now arise one after the other. And the hard part is that we have to face them and we have to deal with them. Look at the articles that now follow after Article 7. They confront one hurdle after another, one issue after another. And it's saying to us that our treasure may be real, but our treasure also needs to be rightly understood and properly defended. And so, beloved, let's this morning turn to the defending, the understanding, and the clarifying part. I preach to you on the following theme, affirming God's election. And we're going to look first of all at its true basis, secondly at its true certainty, and finally at its true value. Well, beloved, when it comes to the doctrine of divine election, the first challenge comes from the direction of the Arminians. Now, not much has been said as yet about these people in this series of sermons. However, all of you who know something about church history and who also know something about the canons of Dort are familiar with these people. And you know, for example, that at the beginning of the 1600s in the Netherlands and surrounding European countries, there was a deep and a bitter theological controversy. It started with a man by the name of Jacob Arminius, a professor at one of the leading universities in the Netherlands. Jacob Arminius wanted to revamp certain points of Christian doctrine. Yes, and one of those points has to do with election. 
Now, it's not that Arminius or his followers denied this teaching as such. After all, how can you deny something that is so obviously in the Bible? But rather what they sought to do is to modify it. God's election, they said, is really based on something which is called foreseen faith. That is, when God elected his people before the foundation of the world, he peered, as it were, into the future, and he could see ahead to all of those people who one day would believe in him and in his son, Jesus Christ. Yes, and it's now on that basis that God elects us. He sees us responding to the gospel, believing in Christ, turning our lives around, walking in the ways of a new obedience, and he says, you're for me. I want you as one of my people. I want you in my church. You are now one of the elect. So the reality is, That because we chose for God first, Arminius said, God next chooses for us. Our faith, our surrender, our actions form the basis and the reason for our election. But is that true? You know, it sounds nice, very complimentary, but is it according to biblical revelation? Consider, beloved, what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ says in John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Consider the words of Acts 13:48, And all who were appointed to eternal life believed. If the Arminians are correct, then it should read, And all who believed were appointed to eternal life. But it doesn't say that. It says the opposite. And consider as well Ephesians 1 verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Notice he chose us in him not because we already were holy and blameless, but in order to be, to become, to be made holy. And blameless. In short, beloved, the canons are right when they say in Article 9, this election is not based on foreseen faith, the obedience of faith, holiness, or any other good quality or disposition as a condition or cause in man required for being chosen. In other words, it's not true. That man's act of believing comes first and God's act of electing depends on it and follows and flows from it. 
Now, when it comes to our salvation, God is always first and foremost. He elects His people because He elects them they in due time come to faith. Now, in this connection, it also has to be said that reference is often made by the Arminians to Romans 8, verse 29, where it says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined. And then it's their contention that that word to foreknow or foreknew means that, that God predestined to be part of His redeemed community those that He saw in advance would choose for Him. But such an interpretation of the word for new ignores its Old Testament background, which is that God sets his covenant love and affection on those whom he has chosen. To foreknow really means to forelove. Because God loved us first, in a caring, affectionate, and delightful manner. He predestined us. So on what is our election based, beloved? It is not based on God seeing our foreseen faith, but rather it is based on God's election. Yes, and it is out of that election the canons rightly say that, that everything else flows forth. Article 9 continues rightly, election therefore is the fountain of every saving good from which flows faith, holiness, other saving gifts, and finally eternal life itself as its fruits and effects. But then, beloved, if our election is not based on our human foreseen faith, but on God. What in God made him do it? In short, on what did God base the choosing of his people? Well, what's the answer? We turn once again to Ephesians 1, verse 5, and where it says, In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. The basis, Paul says, is ultimately God's pleasure, God's will. Elsewhere, Romans 8, 28 says, We are called according to His purpose. And in Romans 9, he writes, it doesn't therefore depend on man's desire or efforts, but on God's mercy. And that's why, beloved, the canons say in Article 10 that the cause of this gracious election is solely the good pleasure of God. And so when all is said and done, where is the basis of our election to be found? It is to be found in God. More specifically, it is to be found in His pleasure, in His will, His purpose. It pleased Him to look down at a humanity steeped in sin and trespass. And out of it, 
to elect some and adopt them. And more than that, beloved, we cannot say. At least not yet. Perhaps when we come into glory, we shall know more. But for now, we must reconcile ourselves to the fact that God has his reasons. And he's allowed to have his reasons, you know. After all, he's God. He's omnipotent. He's all-glorious. He's almighty. He's the sovereign ruler of all. He says it and we need to bow down before it. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's his divine prerogative. But then, beloved, if the first challenge to this doctrine deals with its basis, the second may be said to deal with its certainty. Quite simply, how can we know if we are or are not among the elect of God? How, how can we be sure? How can we ever be confident? And by the way, how do we know that we are not fooling ourselves and engaging in a, in a massive dose of, of wishful thinking? Well, in this regard, one road that we should not go down is the road of speculation. The canons wisely remark in Article 12, they, the elect, attain this assurance, however, not by inquisitively prying into the hidden and deep things of God, And you can see the scripture support for that is taken from Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever. And what that means is that when it comes to the certainty of our election, we must not seek it in areas that go beyond God's word. Or start dabbling in human speculation. And by nature we're great at that. We love to speculate. We are specialists when it comes to the what ifs and the perhaps and the mights and the maybes of life. And in addition we, we love to elevate our logic and our thinking and our perception to the highest degree. And by the same token, we are reticent and we hate to be told none of your business or even something worse. This is really beyond your understanding. And so, beloved, there are limits here. There are limits, especially when it comes to our knowledge of God. And we need to humbly acknowledge that and accept it. But just because our knowledge of God is limited, that doesn't mean that certainty now is beyond our grasp. 
For rightly do the canons point us in another direction, namely in a direction that has everything to do with the Holy Spirit and His work of renewal in our lives. And as such, the canons point us to the fruits of election. And what are they? Well, they're actually four in number. The first fruit or proof of election is true faith in Christ. True faith in Christ. What's true faith? I refer you back to Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. True faith is knowledge and confidence. A sure knowledge and a firm confidence in Christ. In the Word of Christ. In the blessings of Christ. Together these things, they define our faith. And such a faith, Paul tells us, is the gift of God. Specifically, it's the gift of the Spirit of God. He grows it in our lives. And when He grows it in our lives, it's a fruit that points to our election. But it's not the only fruit, for there is a second one called the childlike fear of God. What else is that but a holy respect and awe for God? An awareness of His greatness, a a sensitivity towards His holiness, a surprise every day at His graciousness. You know, in his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer describes people who know their God, and he comes up with four qualities. He says, people who know their God, they have great energy for God. They have great thoughts of God. They have great boldness for God. And they have great contentment in God. And maybe we could add a fifth. They have a great fear of God. I know the canons say that fear, that childlike fear, It's not the fear of a stranger. It's not the fear of the unknown. It's not the fear of a tyrant. No, this is all about a child who looks up to his father and who stands in awe of him. Have you never heard a child say and a child boast, my dad can do anything. And do some of you children here this morning not sometimes engage in dad contests? My dad can do this. My dad is stronger than your dad. My dad is smarter than your dad. Well, for the child of God, there is no greater father than the heavenly father. And being in awe of him, is another fruit that the Spirit grows in our lives and hearts and that confirms our election. A third fruit, beloved, is called a godly sorrow for our sins. I'm not sure 
But is that still around today? Is there still such a thing? And even more I might want to ask, is there still such a thing in in Christian circles, a godly sorrow for sin? You know, if I look at the books that are being published on almost a daily basis and also the Christian books, they're all about confidence and and boldness and how to fix this problem in your life and that problem in your life and how to discover your gifts. But hardly any of them ever speak about godly sorrow. And I think a huge part of the problem is that we Christians, we are ashamed and confused when it comes to that word sin. And we're especially uncomfortable when it comes to talking about our sins. Our neighbor's sins, well, that's another matter. But our sins? And yet, beloved, Scripture speaks about these things all the time. I have an exhaustive concordance at home, and it really is exhaustive because it's over 2,000 pages and weighs more than 20 pounds. And it has all more than 500 entries in it under the word sin alone. And then we haven't even touched on its synonyms. In short, it's saying that sin is a central biblical scheme. And so is sorrow. Regret for sin, repentance, pain, grief, remorse, sadness. Suffice it to say that the Bible recognizes it and how we should react to it. Yes, and when you and I react in true sorrow, the kind of sorrow that comes from knowing that this is why Jesus came and why Jesus died, then that too is a fruit and a proof of our election. And that brings us in turn, beloved, to a final and a fourth fruit, namely a thirst for righteousness. Another way of saying that, you know, is to say a deep longing to do the will of God in terms of our daily lives. That's something that the rich young ruler who came to the Lord Jesus claimed that he was all about until the Lord Jesus punctured his balloon by pointing out that there was at least one area in his life where there was no thirst for righteousness and that was in the area of his money and possessions. Oh, and that's a reminder and a challenge to us too. As believers, we're quick to claim that Christ has made us righteous through faith in Him, but just how much of our personal daily agendas are governed by the doing of His will? Does the way that we speak to and about one another reflect a zeal for God's righteousness? Do our entertainment choices reflect it? What about our prayers? What about our involvement or our lack of involvement in legitimate causes? Just how much thirsting is there for righteousness 
in our lives. At the end of the day, beloved, there is little doubt that also here we need the Spirit of the living God to light a fire in our lives and to create a thirst for this righteousness in our souls. And when he does, when there is this thirst for righteousness, then you have one more proof pointing to the certainty of your election. And so, beloved, take some time out in this coming week and consider and reflect on these four things. A true faith in Christ. A childlike fear of God. A godly sorrow for our sins. And a thirsting for righteousness. Are these present in your lives? Do you want more of them? Do you pray for more of them? Then fear not. Through them, God is confirming your election. But he's also doing something else. He's also showing you its value. And what is its value? You might want to ask yourself, is there any particular value to this entire teaching of the first head of doctrine? Do you see any merit in it at all? Does it help at all and in any way that God has revealed all of this to us? You know, that's another issue and it represents another challenge. And the answer, well, beloved, consider, for example, what it says in Article 13 under the value of this assurance. If you read that article carefully, you see another four things. It insists that a right awareness of election leads to four very positive and necessary things in your life and my life. A daily humility. And who doesn't need that? An adoration of God's mercies. And who doesn't need that? A cleansing of oneself. And a fervent love for God. Who doesn't need those things? You know, when you consider your sins and fallenness, your utter unworthiness, and and still God elects you in Christ, what else can you do but bow humbly before this God in dust and ashes? And when you see the great mercy of God, a mercy that seeks you and, and finds you and grabs hold of you and raises you up out of your sin. What else can you do but adore? Adore God. And thank Him for His abundant mercies. 
And when you look deep into your heart and you identify your lusts and your wanton desires, what else can you do but plead with the Holy Spirit to cleanse you more and more and renew your life? And when you fix your eyes, beloved, on the cross, And when you see what God has done for you in and through Jesus Christ, His Son, in order to save you, what else can you do but sing, Love so amazing, so divine. I think, beloved, the canons are right when they say it is therefore not at all true that this doctrine of election and the reflection on it makes believers lax in observing the commandments of God are falsely secure. It may do so in the lives of those who rashly presume to have the grace of election, but not in the lives of God's elect children. For us who believe, beloved, this doctrine has value and benefit. It deepens our faith. It increases our thankfulness. And it shapes our joy and our confidence in our God. Every day. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.